0: So first of all, thank you so much for your practice. Uh, there's a noticeable more quietness in the room in general. And um, of course we don't know what exactly is going on behind the scenes in the screen of your mind, heaven forbid. <laughs> um, but it does, we do feel that there. It, it's much more tangible when we feel that that sense of that you're sincerely doing your practice, you're keeping the noble silence, um, you're doing the best you can to follow the instructions, the guidance that we're offering you. So the theme of our retreat is equanimity and awareness. And that equanimity, of course, we all know implies balance. Tonight I'd like to speak about establishing that balance generally in our practice by knowing the constituents of our practice, the uh, various qualities that we need to keep an eye on and keeping those particular qualities in, uh, in balance in our practice. So I'll name them as I go along in the talk here. And they're actually called the five balancing factors or the five balancing faculties. And in this way, we begin to deepen the factor of equanimity in our practice. Deepen it in a way that it really, it leads to a powerful um, opening into insight into the nature of reality. So we're practicing equanimity in terms of the relative nature of our life in relation to how we are with other beings, how we are with other situations, um, and developing that non-reactivity to life so that that non-reactivity brings about calm wisdom so that we act in ways that help us be in more peace and happiness in our relative life but it also helps us in terms this development of equanimity also helps us in terms of seeing more deeply into the nature of reality which has to do with the ultimate nature of life and so this is what we're uh, beginning to understand even through our practice here on this uh, during this week. Some years ago, when I was doing some personal practice in uh, Burma, Myanmar, I entered the interview room to um, give a report to the teacher, Sayadaw Pandita. And before I took my position on the seat, on the Zabutan, to do my bows, he was asking me a question as I walked in. And a lot of times this is what a, a teacher would do, a Burmese teacher, sometimes Asian teachers in general. They ask you questions and see if you're paying attention to the Dharma talks. <laughs> so you can, you know, you give an answer and of course they fill it out more. They let you know that it was not the right answer. Um, but uh, it, it makes it a little more interesting and it helps you pay attention more. So this time when I was walking in, uh, out of the blue he said, I was just walking mindfully in, and he said, what is equanimity? What is equanimity? He speaks a little, he spoke a little English, and uh, after I took my seat on the cushion, um, my uh, knelt on the cushion, I answered and I said, equanimity is a calm, spacious balance in the heart-mind that knows when there's reactivity and that can refrain. Something like that. I knew the general answer. And so uh, he came back with this teaching. This is a way that they would normally give a little teaching sometimes before You uh, offer your report. And he said that equanimity, this was said in Burmese and then translated to me equanimity is like a chariot being pulled by five horses. In the lead is mindful awareness. Behind that are a pair of horses that are faith and wisdom. And behind that is a second pair of uh, horses that are concentration and energy. So this gave me a really clear example. You know, okay, this is what is leading to equanimity. Where is he going with this? And he continued to say, when faith and wisdom are in balance, those are the two horses in the uh, behind mindful awareness, faith and wisdom, And when concentration and energy are in balance, then the lead horse, which is mindful awareness, has little work, has little work. So it it gave me a sense of really keeping an eye on those, basically those four factors, faith and wisdom, uh, concentration and energy and to see whether I was having one more than the other in terms of their balance with one another. So this chariot, they always call this chariot the chariot to nibbana, or the chariot to nirvana, or the chariot to the unconditioned, beyond this conditioned world, is what that means. So then this chariot is led effortlessly, smoothly, and powerfully towards liberating wisdom and liberation in general, freeing the heart of greed, hatred, and delusion in steps, step by step. So this talk tonight is about the five cardinal virtues, or the five spiritual uh, balancing faculties. And these, when you know of these, it may help you to understand your own practice and to keep a check on your own practice. So the first is mindful awareness. And that's the lead horse. Behind that is faith and wisdom, the second pair. And behind that, concentration and energy. Just, so just keep that in mind as you do your practice and Um, just listening to the talk. All of these are active powers in and of themselves. But we really need to keep an eye on them because as we go along in our practice, sometimes one becomes stronger than the other and then it starts to feel like we're wobbly in our practice. I'll give you some examples later. So each one of those has their specific function to perform and harmonizes with the other factors to uh, make a really strong, powerful way that pulls that chariot to Nibbana or that chariot to deep liberating wisdom along on your path. So what happens is each one of them and in pair with the other and in balance with the other corrals a potential of the, all the other factors so that they all work together beautifully. So the Buddha points out that neither he nor anyone else can bestow these beautiful qualities upon us or they can't just, you know, say, okay, it's going to be, they've got a magic wand, it's going to be perfect and we're, all we have to do is be in their presence. In this path, that we're taking um, under the guidance of the Dhamma, um, we understand these as potentialities within each one of us, that we ourselves have to uh, bring forth and also nurture, nurture in our practice. We nurture their growth by understanding them, by first knowing that they're a a very important part of our practice we can't just willy-nilly go along and you can't just do it because everything's in silence <laughs> I mean you know if everything's in silence and you just sit there your mind just does what it wants to do we really have to gather these qualities and really work them uh, put them to work in our practice So we understand them, we understand how they work and how to keep them in balance by being aware of them so that we know which one is weaker, which one is stronger and to really nurture the weaker ones. So eventually they're transformed into the five spiritual powers. So sometimes people say, what's the difference between those five spiritual faculties and the five spiritual powers? And it's the simple... uh, response is that when they become empowered by your practice, then they become the five spiritual powers. I'd like to read to you the words of um, an American Theravadan Buddhist monk, Bhikkhu Bodhi. Probably a lot of you have read uh, his translations and his um, ways he's, he's edited major works of the Buddha's teachings, including some commentaries. So this is what he said about these five spiritual faculties. Left to itself without the guidance of a superior source of instruction, the mind is prey to forces that swell up from within itself. Habitual forces which hold us in subjection and prevent us from attaining our own highest welfare and genuine good. These forces are called defilements or kilesas. As long as we live and act under their dominion, we're not our own masters, but passive pawns, driven by our blind desires into courses of conduct and prom- that promise fulfillment, but in the end lead only to misery and bondage. True freedom necessarily involves the attainment of inner autonomy, the strength to withstand the pushes and pulls of our negative habit patterns. And this is accomplished precisely by the development and balance of the five spiritual faculties. So keeping an eye on these is really key in our practice. So let's look at each factor one at a time and how one naturally is a cause for the other to arise. And then I'll fill each one out uh, later. So going over these five again, the first one is faith. This is in the first order of how one affects the other to arise. So faith, I'm going to spend a little more time on faith than the others because some of the others we actually talk about in the instructions and in the um, question and answer period. We fill those out a little more. So faith uh, is in three areas. It said that we can have faith in the teachings, we can have faith in the teachers, and we can have faith in ourselves. And this last one is the most important area to pay attention to in terms of faith. Are we Are we really paying attention to how much faith do we actually have in ourselves? Faith brings forth the energy to put into taking the steps into our path of practice. If we didn't have faith in ourselves, we wouldn't take those steps. Where there is some degree of confidence that our effort will lead us in the right direction. And the right direction, in the terms of the Buddha's teaching, is liberating insight, And it's to that inner freedom, freedom from greed, hatred, and delusion. And some of us maybe don't have that far-off path of being totally liberated from greed, hatred, and delusion. But it's important for you to know that this is a trajectory of this particular path. And there are places along the way which are beautiful places to, um, to reach our sights for but they're not the end of the path and um, the end of this path unless they are really the purification, the total purification of greed, hatred, and delusion to develop just total generosity, love, and wisdom in our lives. So <clears throat> the second um, of these faculties is energy or effort. And this is relaxed, yet sustainable effort. I like to call it gentle, persevering effort. Because it's not striving, it's not this harshness that we put on ourselves to keep going. It's this gentleness, step-by-step, to keep going on the path. When our energy in this practice has continuity in a relaxed, sustainable way, then mindful awareness can arise in a powerful way. So faith brings forth effort and energy. We have to have faith in doing our practice. We can put forth that energy. And that gentle persevering continuity of energy makes mindful awareness very powerful. It's this mindful awareness in this kind of practice on changing objects, on changing experiences. It isn't the, in in Vipassana practice, it isn't on one object or focused on one thing like just on the breath here or here or on a um, casino which is a ball of a color um, or various other things like Metta can be a concentration practice if we're just doing metta to develop concentration. Here, by the way, we're doing metta to develop a beautiful state to beautiful beautiful state of mind so that we can use that in our daily life. So this mindful awareness is on changing experiences and that continuity on changing experience brings about a very strong stability of mind. In Vipassana practice, this stability of mind is concentration, which is the fourth faculty in these uh, faculties of, of the mind. So continuity of awareness on changing objects moment by moment by moment, gathers momentum in a very gentle, clear, sustainable way. And this is a kind of stability we need in our Vipassana practice. So that kind of moment-to-moment concentration steadies and unifies the mind very powerfully, and it firmly stabilizes the energy of the mind, so that it be, can become like a laser beam, and then that laser beam can go forth very powerfully and lights up each moment's experience. It's not about the situation we're in in life. It's not about um, thoughts that we might put together for understanding the Dharma even. but it put it focuses at energy, sustainable, powerful, momentum, uh, that's going on on one moment of experience and then another moment and another moment. And it begins to see beyond uh, what we usually see, deeper than we, what we usually see in life. So it develops a kind of piercing wisdom into the nature of reality. So this is much deeper than the practice that we're doing in our practice here. Uh, equanimity practice as a Brahma-Vihara practice and to um, lessen that reactivity we have in life. We're developing equanimity also so that this equanimity can be transferred into our Vipassana practice. And when we do this kind of practice, Vipassana practice, all of these factors, this faith, energy, mindful awareness, concentration, and wisdom are the factors that really open our attention, open our life to um, understanding deeply the nature of reality. And it takes a lot of equanimity to do this. So all of this together develops that equanimity to open to, to it all, this deep wisdom. So one begins to understand experientially these um, wisdom truths. The basic one is the four noble truths. And I won't um, fill that out tonight because it it gets to be too much information. Just keeping it on the five spiritual faculties here. Opening to, um, in the end, this wisdom, this liberating wisdom. So from this wisdom, the cycle deepens and continues and faith again arises, deeper faith, confidence, kindles the energy to do what needs to be done. And then that kindles mindful awareness so that it becomes very sustainable. And that kindles concentration. And that kindles wisdom, the insights that open to experiencing life in a profound way. So this practice here that we're doing is leading to that as well. We're not going to do this kind of practice here, but we're developing the equanimity in order to transfer to this kind of practice in Vipassana. So of course, greater faith is another cycle. And when faith and wisdom are in balance, Energy and concentration are in balance. It makes the work of the lead horse effortless. Some of you may have heard, if you've been in practice a while, there arises in practice what is called effortless awareness. It's at at that point where you can't do anything else but be aware. You might try to do, you know, um, to distract yourself and something else, but it's not possible. You you're just actively and effortlessly aware moment by moment by moment. So this is a profound and powerful establishment of equanimity on deeper and deeper levels. So now to fill these out for you a little bit more and I'd like to take more time with the faith factor because it's really the inspiration that we need so that we can muster forth the intention to go into the next factor, to see that we can establish that continuity of energy and effort in our practice. It's why we have all these ways of being with one another. We do. We take these um, uh, precepts in the morning of non-harming so we feel this sense of safety here. We take uh, in with that, we take the precept of not speaking with one another so that uh, this con- continuity can go deeper into our practice and not kind of be, um, you know, with getting into concepts and conversations, even about the Dhamma with another person. Um, so we try to keep all of those things together and helping you so that, you know, you don't have to do a lot of work here except to fill your water bottle once in a while. I know that takes a lot of thinking and planning sometimes. Or when am I going to go to the bathroom? You know, it's just all these simple things. So that we can really practice having this faith to take the next step over and over again. This faith plants the seeds of confidence in our hearts that's, that makes it possible to uproot the unwholesome habit patterns. I know, you know, we just need enough faith to take the next step, really. But it's helpful to have a long-range view that all these habit patterns can weaken and really can give us a happier life, a more peaceful life when they weaken. We are, we on the path here, um, those who are guiding you, Uh, Tara and Sally and myself, we see this to be true. It's not theoretical for for us. This is, in actuality, we see that it weakens the habit patterns that cause suffering in ourselves and therefore others. But we have to take the steps to do that. Um, There are three kinds of faith it's wonderful how there can be three of this and four of that it helps us to remember <laughs> and for you to take notes <laughs> there are three kinds of faith there's blind faith there's bright faith and there's verified faith so blind faith is when we're just following a path of practice because basically basically that's what we're born into <laughs> sometimes and uh, we follow others, what others are doing, because it it just seems that that's the right thing to do at the right time, uh, at that time. But we're not checking it out for ourselves. Um, when we're when we're not in blind faith, we're really asking questions: Is this the right way? Is this really going to lead to more peace and less suffering, more happiness and less suffering? for myself and others. So in a famous teaching called the Kalama Sutta, the Buddha advised those who were confused and who asked him what teaching to follow. He said, follow a teaching that you think will lead to less unwholesome states of mind and more wholesome states of mind. A teaching that will develop more wholesome states of mind and that will help you renounce unwholesome states of mind. And follow that path and see whether it helps you on the way. Does it help you be more peaceful? Does it help you have less suffering? Does it help you have more harmony in within yourself and in the world? And then follow that path. And so if you follow that path, you may come across someone who would give you bright faith. And this is a second kind of faith, bright faith. It's when we're inspired by a teaching, a person who personifies wisdom and compassion, and we say, oh, if that person can do it, then I can do it too. And it's not only like, you know, that person is the one and we just listen to that person and agree. And we say, oh yeah, that's a really that's a really good thing. That's a good idea, but we don't do it ourselves. When we just agree, that's blind faith. When we have so much veneration in a teacher and we're not walking the path ourselves, and we're just saying, what a wonderful teacher, but not doing it ourselves, this is actually blind faith. And so... Bright faith is when we we meet somebody who's walking the path and continues to do that and we see that there are qualities in that person that we may be able to um, establish in ourselves too. And so it gives us a sense of bright faith. There might be a place or a reading or some teaching that comes even in nature that gives us that inspiration that bright faith, inspiration to walk our own path. Usually when I would start having that blind faith in one of my teachers, um, like Manindraji, he would say, the Buddha solved his own problem. Now you have to solve yours. He would kind of admonish me. And then he would say, uh, the teachers only show the path. You have to do it yourself when he thought I was putting too much upon him to do it for me. So bright faith for me was when I met people on the path like Manindraji or Upandita or others that I met along the way. But it was mostly because Manindraji told me about Deepama. I think some of you have read about her, Deepama. Deepama. The first book that came out about her by Amita Schmidt was called Knee Deep in Grace, and then uh, another updated book came out. But I encourage you to to read that. Um, I never met her, actually, but Manindraji told me many stories about her, and I felt like I really knew her. Um, She was close by. She was actually... uh, relative of Manindraji. And Manindraji told me that he gave her the instructions that he had learned and she even surpassed him in his uh, Dhamma capabilities. And there are incredible ways that that happened if you read the book about her. It's almost unbelievable. Um, but like Manindraji would say, it's um you may not it's okay if you don't believe it. But it's true, he would say. <laughs> um, so Deepama was a housewife and a mother, uh, just like me, on the path, who did a lot of her practice at home, and she really reached the depth and uh, of the Dhamma that really purified her heart and mind to a beautiful degree. That It just shone forth from her. And um, she was one of the very bright lights of... Of the Dharma to me. So then there's verified faith. It's when we do the practice ourselves. We follow the, um, the instructions, and you know, the, the path of practice is led by doing our practice of non harming. Those are the precepts we take every morning. And then we do the practice of learning concentration, and then we develop wisdom through. Um, that step-by-step way. We open to the Eightfold Noble Path and insights begin to arise through that where the mind and heart begins to be more and more free of ignorance and delusion, greed and hatred and all the ways that it manifests. So it's something that requires a lot of devotion, a lot of courage, a lot of intention in our lives. So then there's also about faith there's faith in the teacher faith in the teachings and faith in our own ability so i'm honing in more on this faith in our own ability to walk this path sometimes we come to this path with the thought i i just want to be more calm or i just want to be in a place where i can have some inner silence once in a while or Come to a retreat where we can be in nature. I mean, those are all worthy um, aspirations to have. And some of us have been on the path long enough to know we know enough to know that there are times in our practice when we don't feel the pummeling of greed, of strong wanting or hatred or uh, towards ourselves, even, and we're seeing more clearly and we know this is a good place to be. If only this could happen more and more. And it, it nurtures our ability to keep on the path. And then some of us, it, it makes us come back because we have those moments of strong calm and clarity and peacefulness. And then we, some of us may have another aspiration to have the audacity to be totally free of greed, hatred, and delusion in this very life. And uh, I was really inspired by um, a book that was written about... um, It was a translation of Dhamma Talks that Sayadaw Upandita gave in a two-month retreat, I think. Um, And uh, the name of that book is um, called in this very life and it meant to be free in this very life free of greed, hatred and delusion and so I met him about that time and that really inspired me to know that it's possible and it's, it's great to have a teacher who believes that that's possible for you I mean he was a really strict teacher for me really, really strict, and sometimes I thought he was mean, you know. But, but he had the audacity to have so much compassion for his students that what he wanted for his students is to be completely free. And if you didn't want that completely for yourself, he wasn't that interested in you, actually. But he, he would really be interested in those people who wanted that for themselves. So focusing on this faith in oneself here, it's a faith in that possibility to f- put forth the effort to walk this path. It doesn't have to be to complete, completely free of greed, hatred, and delusion, but even just a little bit would do. I mean, wouldn't that? If you could sit there and not have these aversive thoughts about yourself or others, um, to have some space of calm in your mind and heart. And I know each one of you have had that or else you wouldn't come back. It takes even just a little bit to make us come back to that. So um, a mind that is stable and concentrated and so that liberating wisdom can come forth from there. So the first time, I've been practicing a long time, but the first time I went to Burma to practice, Uh, with Sayadaw Upandita, who I practiced with in other places of the world. But I've decided to go to Burma then. And I had this aspiration to ordain temporarily as a nun. Not for a lifetime, but as a a temporary time of a few months. And um, I had practiced uh, enough before that I knew it was going to be arduous. So when I went there this time... I went to um give my greetings to him and also um just to let him know that I was here to practice to and do the best I could. So when I went to him I had already ordained and it was hot and humid and really dusty and I wore the nun's robes and um which made it even more hot and humid. And I was in my fifties, and so all of you, or some of you may know that it was a menopausal time of my life. So here I was wearing robes that, you know, the the, um, inner blouse is is up to here. It's got this little collar that's up to here. The sleeves are down to here, and they're they're, um, form-fitting sleeves. And then uh, there's this um skirt that is made out of polyester, like duh. They <laughs> couldn't find any cotton there. and so the top two is polyester, and then there's this inner robe that you can wear when you're not in public and um so that too there's that's like three things, right? And then there's this outer robe that you have to wear in public. And there's this um, sort of sash over your left shoulder that says you're a daughter of the Buddha. And and you wear these things and you walk around in this hot (laughs) Burmese weather and it's like, what am I doing here? Why did I ordain now? So the food was, you know, the food is good in that monastery. They even have their own garden, um, organic garden, but uh, you still get bugs, you know, stomach bugs, and, and I have stomach weakness. So when I went to Upandita, uh, did my bows, and he said, why are you here? It's hot, it's humid, it's not easy to do this, the food is not always the best for Westerners, even though the kitchen was immaculate, etc. And... The only thing I could answer was, I'm here to purify my heart. I had practiced with him before and I knew I just wanted to do anything more I could do. And he said something interesting um, that I'd never heard anybody talk about or say before or after. And he said, You must invest everything you have in your practice everything you have and he didn't mean monetarily what i knew what he meant was to take stock of what i had already developed in my practice and to use that in my practice now to really be willing to with humility see you know that there was some mindfulness developed there is a degree of concentration and energy. There is a degree of faith and wisdom or else I wouldn't even have gone there. Uh, So those were the qualities that I could use and invest in, in my practice. And so faith was major, major, major. And that's why I talk about it mostly because it steers the mind away from doubt. Doubt destabilizes and disempowers our intentions. When we were there in our practice and all we can see is like aversion towards ourselves, aversion towards whatever else that overflows into, or um, that we don't have enough energy, or we can't just take the next step, it's, it's really, really hard to continue. So we really need to take a good look at our devotion to our practice. Devotion to our intention. To why we're here. Because when doubt arises we can't do the practice. You know, all those thoughts come to us. I can't do it. And we compare ourselves with the, with the other people in front of us or around us. And, you know, I used to be in long practices, and the person in front of me would be completely still, and I would be comparing, you know, oh, I have to move, I have to, you know, it hurts, and this and that. And for a long time, I would think, I'm no good, I can't. This is the beginning of practice, I'm no good, I just can't do this. One of my colleagues, Sharon, said, be sure to say when you talk about your own foibles that that happened long ago when you're giving a dharma talk. So that was before, okay? Now I don't do so much comparing. But that happened until that person was so still and was so tired that that person fell over. And that person was asleep, you know? So... Um, It's really, you know, it's really silly to compare ourselves because we have no idea what's happening in that other person's mind. So I learned that by accident. (laughs) So tune into our intention and take the next step when doubt arises. Okay, I'm just going to take this next step. I'm just going to do this next breath. I'm just going to watch this moment of aversion in the mind. Or just do this little bit of meta because there's so much aversion. Know what your tool, what's in your toolbox and use it. So faith, it said that faith keeps an eye on our highest aspirations but know it must take one step at a time in that direction. Like uh, it, in Mount Analog uh, René Dumal said the first step depends on the last and the last step depends on the first. So we're grown-ups here we know we came here with our intention. So can we keep our intention in view and not give up on ourselves? Think about it. This is what I came here for. I'm just going to do the next step now. Maybe it's just getting to the hall and getting in our seat or getting on our walking path or taking that long walk that we need on a pathway here in the, among the trees or the clouds. So where we're not paralyzed by doubt, tune into our devotion and really um, remember that we do have this devotion to our path of practice. So that's faith and the different kinds of faith. And then energy and effort are really important to pay attention to as well. Um, Energy and effort in our practice helps us to take that next step but to do it in a continuous way and not in a way that's um, just stop and go, stop and go, but to do our practice continuously. I, I remember um, I was in practice, a long practice was with Upandita and one of my colleagues, uh, was one of your teachers, Howie was there, Howie Kon and at I just kept plodding along, plodding along. I do I would just do that with going from my walking place to the line to get the food, eat the food, you know, mindfully, put it wash the dishes, go up to my room step by step by step, not too fast, not too slow, just plodding along. And I remember Howie may not remember this, but he came to me at the end of the retreat and he said, you just were just plodding along, <laughs> plodding along, one step at a time, one step. Uh, he didn't say exactly that. He probably said something else, but that's the, that's the sense I got. And I said, oh, that's pretty good. <laughs> I'm going to do that again. You know, it, it, got, it really helped to get that mirroring from somebody. So, that kind of energy is persistent, energy that has continuity. That's the kind of energy we need. Not this kind that, okay, you're going to do the walking good, but then I'm going to go in the room and just, um, you know, pick up even a, a Dhamma book. You know, put the Dhamma book down, read the Dhamma in your heart. I mean, the first long retreat I took, I was reading a book about 30 days in a a retreat. (laughs) And when the teacher found out, the teacher said, what? You're reading this book? Do your practice. That's what this book is all about. So you can read, you know, the book of your heart and mind here. Put the books away if it, if it helps you, of course, you know, it gives you a little inspiration. But anyway, I'm just telling you what I did. You're going to do what you do. <laughs> so when this, this sutta I came across really helped me to do this continuity of effort. And this is um, a sutta where there's a story about someone who asked the Buddha... Um, you know, what did you do? How did you cross the flood? The flood is often used, the words that are used to refer to samsara, this, um, you know, round and round we go on this, uh, you know, wanting this, not wanting that, not even seeing what we want, not even seeing that we're aversion, we're averse greed, hatred, and delusion. This is the flood, So this person asks, How, dear sir, did you cross the flood? And the Buddha answered, By not stopping or halting, friend, and by not straining, I crossed the flood. But how is it, dear sir, that by not halting and not straining, you cross the flood? And the Buddha answered, When I came to a standstill, friend, I sank. But when I struggled... I got swept away in this way, friend, that by not halting and not straining, I crossed the flood. So what he's talking about here is this continuity of awareness moment by moment. Like one of our teachers, Utejaniya, said, this is not a hundred-yard dash. This is more like a marathon that we're on. Just have to keep Doing our practice and not striving too much because we'll sink and if uh, we'll, we'll struggle, and if we halt, we'll sink. So, just finding a way that keeps you just right on the path, buoyant and clear. Utejaniya says this spiritual faculty of <clears throat> energy or effort called Wiria." is a faculty of patience and perseverance together. So that's the energy of patience, the energy of perseverance, are also qualities of this effort and energy. So covered faith and effort and energy. And now a little bit about mindful awareness. And um, Sally started... We've been talking about this already and Sally gave instructions about this this afternoon as well. And we'll talk about this all during our retreat. So I'm not going to... This can be a whole series of Dhamma Talks. So just in a nutshell, um, in Pali, that ancient language that the Buddha's teachings were preserved in, there is this word sati, essay, S-A-T-I in Pali language. And that word means mindfulness. So I just want to fill it out a little bit to give you an idea or a sense of how you can understand that in a practical, experiential way. So this sati, it's from the word satipatana bhavana uh, vipassana. And those three words put together um, mean, sati means mindful awareness. It means a remembering, actually, to be mindful. The, Sally, Sally pointed out that that word means remembering, and precisely what it remembers is to be in the present moment, mindful in the present moment. And in the word pa, sati pa. Pa means powerful. In our practice, it's not just this mindfulness of like the sky is blue or we're taking one step or the truck is coming. You know, it's, <laughs> it's powerful mindfulness, the kind of mindfulness that can pierce through the illusion of solidity or permanence, the illusion of self. The illusion that there is something in this world that is going to give us um, enduring happiness. There is happiness, but it doesn't last, it comes and goes. So, in the simplest sense, sati means to remember, to observe, to remember, to observe, to be aware of the present moment, not in the past. Because we we learn a lot from reviewing the past but not this kind of mindfulness that the Buddha was talking about. It's not about the future because even if we think we're going to be more wise in the future that's not going to be freedom make uh, freedom happen in this moment or in the future. So it's being present with this very moment. They say in the Dhamma and in, in a lot of um, of... The ancient teachings, and this one is from Chuang Tzu. The mind is like a mirror. It grasps that nothing, it refuses nothing, it receives but does not keep. So it's like this mirror of mindfulness every moment. It doesn't have anything in it like an attachment that goes out to grasp whatever's pleasant, it doesn't have anything in it like a hand that's aversive that pushes away the unpleasant. And it's very clear. It's a very clear mirror that just uh, reflects the present moment, moment by moment by moment, the ever-changing present moment in a deep way. um, And also, it's said that sati is this balancing factor. Of all the factors, it's the one that balances all the others. So as long as you have this sati, it will balance the other factors, the the pairs of factors out. So this is a very, of all of them, this is the most powerful one. So we have faith, energy, effort, mindful awareness, which is sati. And now this fourth, fourth faculty is concentration. So here in the in the retreat we're teaching, we're not teaching metta as a concentration practice or equanimity as a concentration practice, but they can be in and of themselves concentration practices. If we focused over and over again on um, the words that we bring up or the people that we bring up or the feeling that happens all these various jonic factors arise and they deepen into um, very deep levels of concentration. But we're not doing that here. We're developing equanimity as a way to weaken reactivity and help reactivity actually not even to be there sometimes in our practice. So other beautiful qualities of mind can come forth and be able to... Uh, present to us a deeper balance and a, uh, a mind and heart that's filled with wholesome qualities that able to face our practice. So we're doing our practice to what is called develop kusala, develop goodness in ourselves, develop strong, uh, powerful ways of goodness. Equanimity is the most powerful. So <clears throat> This concentration that we're developing is not on a focus on a particular object, but it's more like uh, being able to, in our Vipassana practice, it's being able to take this concentration on changing objects, not on just one object. When you do concentration for, for metta, you develop metta. Uh, metta, you can develop metta and metta meta metta concentration. When you do it with equanimity, you can develop equanimity concentration. And there are all kinds of other concentrations to get you to very deep levels of one-pointedness. And it does not, it just develops that. I mean, it's very sublime, but that is not insight into the nature of reality those practices are not freeing the mind of totally of greed, hatred, and delusion. So the practice that we're offering you is Vipassana practice. And that kind of concentration is on changing objects. So that's why we ask you, you can use the breath, you can use your body to begin with, but actually to be able to uh, take whatever object comes up Whatever's predominant, whatever comes up naturally, let go of the breath or the body and go there. Whatever, even if it's a defilement, start to notice it. Start to be, let your awareness be on changing objects. Not to always come back to the breath unless you need to for stabilization. So that's a big difference between the concentration in vipassana and concentration on um, objects like metta or just being with the breath. So we learn with this concentration, still learn a unification of the mind and the body with vipassana. We feel very, very stable, even though a lot of things are changing in our awareness, there's a very deep, steady, stable, uh, uh, stability of feeling within the body and the mind just feels like there was, there's a unification of that. There are times, in even in Vipassana practice, where we can feel really secluded from the hindrances, that the um, place of, of feeling that stability is a, a very deep place where we feel like we're in a bubble protected from the hindrances temporarily. As soon as we stop um, the practice, The hindrances would come back, though. So this this is a concentration that we develop, and then it goes to uh, the development of wisdom. When this kind of concentration is there, it's said that it pierces through the illusion of solidity and permanence. So what we see there is when it pierces through the illusion of permanence, we begin to see on a pixelated level, on a moment-to-moment level. And I'll I'll, I'll fill this in more in the last uh, Dharma talk um, of how um, equanimity really frees the mind. When it pierces through the illusion of permanence, the deep understanding and wisdom of impermanence is known. Not theoretically, but experientially, on a really deep, pixelated level, moment to moment to moment. And it also pierces through the illusion of a solid sense of self. Because in that impermanence, you can't see any solidity anywhere. It's just, everything's just coming and going. And, um, and it also pierces through the illusion of that somewhere, somehow in our life, if we keep chasing after pleasant objects, we're going to find something that's enduringly satisfying, which is an illusion. We learn that there's nothing because there's impermanence. Even satisfying, happy moments go away there is there is you know it comes back again when conditions come together especially conditions of a good heart come together the peace comes together but those end and it begins to be totally okay because there's something deeper than that there's wisdom there's understanding there's comprehension in a in a way that's freeing of the mind So that's wisdom. When faith and wisdom come together, enough faith to do the practice and not depend on others, um, not depend on the wisdom of others, then wisdom can be developed because we keep all the steps going in between. And when um, energy is there, enough energy to keep us awake, alert, moment to moment continuity, that uh, develops that kind of concentration that deepens our practice. When there's too much concentration, we may fall asleep or get in a in a kind of um, uh, blur and think that, oh, this is so pleasant, I'll just be here. But actually, it's not clear. So we want to develop enough concentration to keep us alert with clarity and um, with that energy uh, that puts it into that so that we're clear and not so much concentration so that we we just get into like a a five hundred yard gla- glaze glazed over, <laughs> looking at life and uh, not really deepening into our practice so these these are the the balances that we're finding that we need to have in our practice? Do we have enough faith to take the next step that leads to deeper and deeper understanding and wisdom? Can we keep energetic enough that we're not striving? It's just gentle, persevering effort so that that kind of moment-to-moment effort brings about that clarity of concentration that we need and then this will develop into that um, powerful equanimity that can be with everything just as it is in these very deep moments of what we call um, that equanimity of at all the sense stores, at the six sense stores and we're not pulled by anything, we're not sinking into anything Everything is just seen moment to moment without preference, without aversion, without attachment. So this is what brings that kind of deepening into our life, which is really important. we're, we're pra- This is the way we're practicing so that we get there. We take this step in our practice of equanimity here, being able to... Um, be quantumists, develop equanimity, whatever goes on uh, outside, watching what goes on inside, and not feeding the uh, reactivity that's there. And soon that can be a very strong kind of equanimity in our uh, Vipassana practice that leads us to seeing the true nature of reality and gets us to this place of Liberating wisdom. So, as the Buddha said, step by step to the highest. So, I'd like to end with um, this. Um, came from one of the teachers I had, Ayakema. Um, she was a mother, and at um, a certain age, when I think her child was older she ordained as a nun and remained as a nun and wrote very many beautiful books on the Dhamma, Ayakema. She said, um, when we do this practice, cultivate this practice of balancing these faculties, one finds oneself a more harmonious and balanced person with less difficulties, capable of helping others, To develop these five faculties should be a primary object in one's life. The balancing of them needs to be seen as connecting the heart with the mind. So let's take a moment to let the words dissolve. We've taken in whatever we can. We don't have to remember a thing. It's all gonna come up in our practice. And you'll probably hear this talk other times. So may our practice lead to a deep kind of happiness and peace beyond what we can imagine that brings us to liberating insight, freer and freer from greed, hatred, and delusion. Thank you for your kind attention. time for walking now? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.